Um, this is the first event organized by Spike after the pandemic, so nice to see some faces again. And we are very glad to get back on track with tonight's discussion called Ruling Class Hysteria, which is also the occasion to celebrate the German edition of uh, the book The End of the End of History, uh, published by Rome. And we warmly welcome our two speakers tonight, Alex Oblik and Eric Broder. Alex is a writer, researcher, and consultant based in Sao Paulo. He is co-host uh, of the Global Politics podcast Bungacast and co-author of the book The End of the End of History. He is currently working on a new book on the regionalization of the world. Curious about that. Uh, David Broder is a Europe editor of uh, Jacobin magazine and a translator. Uh, a historian of Italy, he's author of First Epic Rome, How the Populist Right Conquered Italy, published by Vasco, and the far coming Mussolini's grandchildren, Fascism in Contemporary Italy. And tonight, Alex and David will guide us through our contemporary ruling class history. As we all might have more or less noticed, the uh, liberal democratic consensus and the technocratic order, which used to rule us undisturbed for quite some time, has crumbled. And we can say politics is back, but a strange and we might call hysterical one. And tonight, Alex and David will help us understand why we can call it so and why the end of history supposedly ended. A few words on how the talk is planned. So Alex and David will first have a circa ten-minute single uh, intervention, followed by a discussion with each of them, and then we will open up to the audience. And uh, after the talk, please join us for drinks at the lovely Spike Bar, and uh, you will also find the English and German version of the book. Um, so as Spike's magazines uh, at the Crook and Bookshop Corner across the room. Thank you. All right, hello. Uh, it's lovely to see so many of you. Uh, thank you, first of all, to Isabella for that introduction, and thank you to her, to Christian, and Rita at Spike Magazine, and the rest of the team here for hosting us. It's fantastic to be here. Um, and also thanks to ProMedia, uh, our German language publisher. I should also probably apologize that uh, the co-hosts of the podcast and co-authors, George and Phil, couldn't make it. Uh, so just me. I'm sorry. Um, okay, so if our book, uh, The End of the End of History, were to have a sort of big, dumb strap line, like, you know, kind of American books often have, it would be that uh, politics is back, but it's weirder than ever, which is something that Isabel already hinted at. Um, now, I feel like in Germany, that's maybe a bit of a harder sell than in certain other places because it's been boring. Is that okay? Am I going to offend people if I say that? Anyway, we'll, we'll come to why that is. Um, so the premise of the book, if you're not familiar, is that the period that the American political scientist Francis Fukuyama declared as the end of history, in which liberal democracy would be the final form of human government, the end of humanity's political evolution, uh, that that has ended, or it is ending. Which doesn't mean that history has restarted. It doesn't mean that there's now a systemic alternative to capitalism on the horizon. Um, and despite the fact that there might be war in Europe, for example, that doesn't necessarily mean a restarting of history, uh, which I think Time Magazine had a cover saying that, suggesting that it had. Um, but the point is, is that the end, of the, end, the end of history has ended. 
Um, and really what that means is that the basic features of the 1919 to 2016, 2020 period uh, are withering away. And we can go through the list of the principal features of what the end of history was and go, well, you know, that's not here anymore. So the forward march of globalization, which was seen to be uh, something which was inescapable, uh, that's halted or even gone into retreat. And uh, there was the idea, which I think was widely satirized, that no two countries with the McDonald's would ever go to war with one another. Well, that's how they disproven, of course, by uh, the war in Ukraine. Though McDonald's, I think, is pulled out of Russia, so maybe they're trying to prove that theory true. Maybe that's Putin's ultimate goal to prove that really dumb theory true. Um, globalism, which I would see as the um, ideological accompaniment to globalization, has also seriously weakened. So uh, the British Prime Minister Tony Blair thought that and argued that globalization was effectively a natural force, and being against it would be like being against the weather. Uh, and so what politicians' job was at the end of history was merely to adapt societies to globalization, this natural force, rather than in any way seek to shape globalization or even to just shape national politics, let alone pursue social transformation. That's also been seriously weakened, of course. You can think of all the extraordinary measures that we've seen over the past five years, um, and that I think that deals a very serious blow to globalism. Uh, as for neoliberalism, I think that's also on the way. Maybe it doesn't seem so much in Germany. I'd be interested to hear what people think about that, actually. Um, but it's, at any rate, so distorted today from the perspective of what people in the 1980s thought neoliberalism was, as to be almost a totally different thing. And at any rate, the intellectual authority of neoliberalism has completely eroded. Um, and then finally, on a more specifically political level, post-politics, which is this idea that all serious political contestation is foreclosed, not only limited to the narrow forms of bourgeois parliamentary democracy, um, but actually foreclosed, um, that has also gone. So, you know, post-politics is effectively this idea that technocratic management takes the place of public debate, and that politics is no longer about competing visions of society, merely adapting societies to change. And that's completely eroded as well. Um, you can imagine kind of much larger political things being made, and we see this uh, day to day in a way that was unimaginable, at least for me, growing up in the 90s and coming of age in the 2000s and so on. So when we were writing this book in 2019, early 2020, we got a bit of pandemic, so, we made, so that's in the book. Um, so unfortunately, we, <laughs> we didn't miss that one out. Uh, it was pretty important. Um, it was pretty evident that all these factors were at play in the US, in the UK, and certain other Western countries. So what about Germany? I think Germany is a more difficult case because Germany seems to be trying its hardest to remain within the end of history, uh, remain forever within the end of history. Uh, and I think even if you look at like last autumn's election here, it seems to kind of confirm that. So, okay, you have more political fragmentation, right? The main two center-left, center-right parties, which used to account for over 15% of the electorate, of actually the vast majority of the electorate, is no longer the case. But the parties that are there, the Greens, AFD, whatever, don't really represent competing interests or visions for society, but rather seem to represent more views. You can imagine, oh, this is your typical Green Party voter. This is your typical CDU voter, but they don't really represent different class bases um, or different, radically different visions for society. I mean, the political spectrum is very narrow. So why do I think Germany is, and you know, you can feel free to criticize me if you think I'm completely wrong about this afterwards. That's kind of the point of this, anyway. Um, why do I think Germany occupies this role in a permanent end of history? 
The first one is probably the most obvious one. It's its central role within the capitalist core, which has allowed it to insulate itself to a certain extent in the turbulence elsewhere, certainly seen in Southern Europe, but also as seen in the US. Uh, though now with the energy crises and inflation staring us in the face, we'll see how long this lasts. And the second one is a deeper historical reason, I think, which is that Germany's whole trajectory after the Second World War was in a way kind of post-historical before the end of history itself. Um, certainly if we understand history as wars and revolution, um, the whole structure of the Federal Republic was in a way set up to avoid that. And you can think of US strategic supervision, uh, you can think of the various constitutional measures to prevent inflation. All these things are a way of containing politics and making sure that history never breaks out ever again. That combined with the EU and Germany's central role in the EU, I think has compounded that element of Germany being the end of history country par excellence. So, you know, the European Union is above all a means of technocratic management and cooperation between national elites in the place of democratic representation and popular sovereignty. So it's a way of making sure that politics never really intrudes on the economic management of society. Um, and of course the EU is also a means of uh, curtailing any geopolitical ambitions Germany might have. Uh, so as a friend of mine put it, you know, Germany is all economic, is all economy, you know, politics. Again, if you want to disagree with me, you know better than I, so uh, we'll see. But anyway, in this, in this scenario of end of history and perpetual end of history in Germany, uh, democracy, which of course everybody says they're in favor of, becomes redefined in a completely different way. So it doesn't mean popular power or political representation, it just means this sort of postmodern space in which, you know, you're free to do whatever you want, you can go shopping, but nothing big ever really happens. Okay, so this is the, this, I'm kind of undermining the whole thesis to start off with, but now I'm going to explain why it's still relevant. We're trying to anyway. Um, the theme of the talk today is ruling class hysteria, and I don't think we can ignore the fact that politics has become increasingly hysterical and unhinged uh, in recent years. And this is particularly the case amongst the liberal establishment, uh, for whom any attempt to break free from the cozy consensus of the end of history, all those features I uh, enumerated at the start, uh, that those are not only impossible to comprehend, but can only be uh, explained through various sort of outre crazy theories. Um, so regular listeners to the podcast will know we've talked a lot about the election of Trump and Brexit as major features in this, but when those both events happened in 2016, uh, you know, Western elites, particularly what we call the liberal establishment, could only see it as the result of Putin's machinations, bots that convince people to vote against their own interests, um, and so you have this weird change where previously conspiracy theories, which were understood as vehicles for outsiders to explain their situation, to explain their own powerlessness by creating this image of this hyper-powerful cabal controlling everything, suddenly it's the people at the very center of power, the most insiders of the insiders, who are adopting conspiracy theories. Um, and that is one element of, by, you know, by which that in politics seems so unhinged. Um, that people at the very center of power, rather than being kind of composed and defenders of the status quo, well, they're defenders of the status quo, but it's all a little bit crazy. So we call this whole set of symptoms um, whereby the establishment is unable to accept, explain, or respond to political challenge. We call that neoliberal order breakdown syndrome. And I think one of the most absurd elements, and maybe David's going to talk a little bit about this too, kind of in response to this, um, has been the growth of elite anti-fascism. So I think the most obvious and absurd example is 
in the US where Democrats rallied behind the FBI um, to attack Trump. And it's worth remembering that the FBI is the organization responsible for breaking up trade unions, attacking socialists, and carrying out red scare tactics. Um, suddenly, the Democrats and the FBI together are la résistance, well, or hashtag resistance. But anyway, the, uh, the illusion is pretty obvious. Um, and across Europe, I think you get similar phenomena of elite anti-fascism. Whenever they're faced with populist challengers, the elite doesn't seem to understand why people might vote, especially those who have lost from globalization, might seek to vote for protest candidates or anyone offering some sort of alternative, um, and instead demonizes them as incorrigible racists or fascists. Now, the irony here, of course, or at least the contradiction, is that most of these European establishments have been carrying out highly authoritarian policies themselves, whether it's allowing thousands of Africans to die every year in the Mediterranean, or Macron's cops beating up yellow vest protesters, or carrying out bombing campaigns in poor countries around the world. And it's another irony to this is also that anti-fascism uh, is supposedly in defense of democracy. They defend liberal democracy and their opponents are uh, you know, authoritarian, populist, whatever. But, of course, these same people have been trying to undermine democracy from within for a very long time. Not least because, you know, democracy is how the populists get it. And I think the case in the UK provides probably the most obvious examples, and that's why I mention it here, but which is the attempt to overturn the results of the referendum of, of for Britain to leave the EU, which I tell friends in Brazil that this happened, that there was this whole mass of people and large parts of the establishment who wanted to overturn a democratic referendum because they didn't like the result. They're like, really? But the, and the liberals, the kind of left liberals want to do this, but they're supposed to be in favor of democracy. They just don't understand how you could possibly, no matter what your views are on the EU, seek to overturn a democratic referendum. Anyway, so my argument here is that and this elite anti-fascism and neoliberal order breakdown syndrome in a broader sense is really a means of preventing mass politics from ever breaking out. It's a means to contain society in the end of history. And this vision, in part, sees the masses as fascists in waiting. And it doesn't matter whether they're of the left or of the right. Of course, the irony as well is that when there was a real fascist threat in Weimar Germany, at least also blamed the workers ignoring the fact that it was they themselves who had facilitated uh, fascism's rise to power. Um, again, maybe they will pick up a, a bit on this. Um, anyway, so we have this ruling class hysteria, um, which now unfortunately seems to have infected the whole of the political spectrum, such as it is. Uh, so that, you know, populist entrepreneurs, generally on the right, end up reflecting back these unhinged claims. And so politics as a whole seems to take place in this framework of hysterical culture wars. And I thought, that, I thought this was quite visible during COVID because it's quite obvious that no Western state or hardly any Western state performed particularly well during the pandemic, whatever your preferred policy was. I don't think anyone could say it was a resounding success. But what ended up happening is that any debate on it was quickly shut down. Um, and as a consequence, instead of an open political contestation over what would have been a realistic response to pandemic, whether you try to keep life as normal as possible while still prevent protecting the vulnerable. What ended up happening is that because of this lack of opposition, and I think in many ways the left's failure to provide really real opposition to defensive liberties, for instance, that space ended up become, uh, was taken up by crazy anti-vaxxers and the lot. And the mainstream media was very happy to amplify 
all these crazy anti-vaxxers, as a way of, say, of saying, hey, look, the only people who could possibly oppose these measures are these wackos. Do you want to be like these wackos? No, you don't. So I think that was pretty, pretty stark. What the pandemic actually represented for the liberal establishment was an attempt to return to technocracy, again, to put things back in the box, to return to the end of history, where there could be no politics, where politicians could hide behind experts without needing to prevent, present a different vision for society. Okay, but what's happened now? Because the pandemic's been largely forgotten, we're on to Ukraine now. Um, I think that Germany might be a little bit of an exception here, and I'm willing to be you know, corrected if I'm wrong, but I get the sense that um, COVID measures have remained in place, and kind of general COVIDiness has remained in place in Germany longer than in many other European countries. Uh, in part because the Ukraine war doesn't offer the German ruling class the same possibilities it does the UK, for instance. So in the UK, they were able to switch from COVID emergency to uh, Ukraine emergency, just like that. It was like literally from one day to the next. Um, and I owe this point actually to, to a friend of mine, Marilyn Tom, uh, who's German, so she must be right. Uh, <laughs> and, and I think in Germany, this wasn't the case for the obvious reason of Ger uh, Germany's energy dependence on Russia. So we couldn't turn to Ukraine as the new uh, emergency to rally by. Okay, so anyway, to, to bring this to, to a conclusion, how do we explain this hysterical form and mode of politics today? Well, I think it's very important to grasp that the end of history was about removing interests from politics. Not that elites didn't pursue their own interests, but it was never done nakedly. The, the idea of expressing a particular interest, class interest or otherwise, is almost taboo. So politics becomes about technocratic management, and ideology becomes about ethics and humanitarian concern. Everyone says, I, I care for you, I want to protect you, and so on. Now, as Western regimes across the board face very serious crises of legitimacy, which I think will only intensify as the, co as the cost of living continues to rise, their only answer is to demonize opponents. And in fact, the kind of new culture wars that have emerged are a situation in which we're all kind of hysterically demonizing each other um, and can only really see each other in, through the light of mutual unintelligibility. How could you possibly believe that? You're factually wrong. I don't understand how anyone could possibly hold that view. Rather than trying to seek that, to, to seek to root that in interests and how interests are parlayed through ideology, I mean, the normal stuff of politics that people always used to do, rather than um, sitting in two opposed camps looking at each other like, who are you? You look like aliens from another planet. Fascist aliens, probably. But anyway, let's not go into that. Um, so, um, I think when we do that, when we engage in this sort of culture wars, not only does it prevent any real politics from breaking out, we're also just aping the style that the liberal establishment has inaugurated with neoliberal order breakdown syndrome. And so it's very self-defeating. So just to conclude, I think one good first step to take, I mean, at least for the left to take, to break through this impasse, would be to abandon ethics and humanitarianism, to stop pretending we're the good guys you know, we're the nice guys who come and take care of you, uh, who have your best interests at heart. And instead, to forthrightly defend the interests of the working class majority in society. Um, just to leave things a little bit clearer and to reintroduce the notion of naked interests into political debate. Thank you.
Okay, so, um, well, thanks everyone for coming, and thanks Alex for uh, inviting me to come uh, in place of your co-authors, and thanks to Isabella and Spike uh, for hosting us. Um, yeah, I, mean, I think one of the um, really fascinating things uh, about uh, your book, uh, and also it's to do with kind of the moment it came out, you said they got, you, know, you got the first part of the pandemic, but with a uh, certain uh, talent for prediction, you also understood that the pandemic wasn't going to change forever the way we live. At a time when there were a lot of uh, excitable or alarmist predictions about how the pandemic was going to um, you know, um, change the way we think of work, change the way we live, change the way the economy is ordered. Uh, certainly in the British case, uh, there was a lot of excitement when Tory government stepped in to uh, offer the furlough, propping up wages, you know, people said, you know, the Tory Chancellor, Rishi Sunak, he's nationalised 80% of the economy, this kind of thing. But then, in fact, we saw that this was indeed you know, an, an important episode of crisis management, which called on new, um, new uh, rules and broke some existing ones. Um, but we didn't see a return to politics. We didn't see a return to uh, big debates about where our societies uh, were headed. Uh, and I think one of the, the qualities of the book is its distinction it draws between the end, uh, sorry, uh, the, uh, the end of the end of history uh, as distinct from a so-called return uh, of history. And, and some of the comments I'm going to make are sort of uh, will prompt uh, Alex to, to talk more about that. Um, because it seems to me that uh, anti-fascism uh, has indeed increasingly lent on by uh, liberal establishment centrist parties as a way of legitimizing their authority, demonizing their opponents, trying to push back into the box uh, very sort of nasty and novel phenomenon we've encountered in recent years. Uh, the most uh, sort of perfect example, if you will, is uh, Emmanuel Macron in France, this kind of combining both left and right, as he puts it, against a fascist threat, which in turn is not just identified with Marine Le Pen or even with racist and exclusionary and identity, identitarian policies, but rather any possible challenger. And then again, of course, so in recent elections, uh, we saw this, uh, this attempt to revive this kind of uh, canard uh, trying to label the, the, the left, Jean-Luc Mélenchon, uh, as anti-Semitic and so on. Um, but I mean, one thing I think we can talk about as compared to, say, if we'd been having this discussion in 2016, or even at the moment of the Capitol Hill riot um, at the uh, beginning of uh, last year, was that, is that it seems to me that the, um, this kind of uh, panicking, hysterical anti-fascism has actually returned to being the dominant mode of politics on the left in a way which it wasn't five years ago. One of the qualities of the new sort of left populist uh, experiences and movements was that they tried to challenge the kind of uh, elite distrust, disdain, despising of the masses involvement in politics and tried in some minimal way, at least rhetorically, to try and recreate that. Uh, of course, we could talk a lot about the weakness of these experiences in, you know, when I'm talking about, say, Bernie Sanders, Jeremy Corbyn, Franz Antonis, Podemos, all of them, upon their creation, 
aimed at some sort of transversal mobilization to break out of the, the ghetto of the left in which they uh, had previously existed and try and appeal to some broad category, you know, the 99% or the left behind, or these, you know, uh, in, in the British case, um, you know, Brexit voters who'd abandoned the Labour Party and so on. And in each of these experiences, over time, we saw them lose that particular trust and basically convert themselves into junior partners of liberalism. Either in the American case, obviously the, the direct participation of Bernie and AOC and so on in, in supporting the Biden administration, in the Spanish case, the way in which Podemos has become a junior partner for the socialists, but also how its rhetoric, its uh, particularly Pablo Iglesias call for the vote for the party has increasingly become this kind of last. So, you know, but systematically, when Podemos first arose, it said, you know, the constitution inherited from Francoism, this democratic order isn't enough, isn't representative, we want to break out of that, we want a real democracy, and so on. Whereas now it's in the position of defending the current institutions from a resurgent party, which is like Franco's dad. Um, and again, in, the, in, the, in the, um, the British case, we saw how the, uh, the Remain and anti-Brexit uh, ideology scuppered and then uh, successfully destroyed the, the Corbyn project. So in each of these cases, I think what we can say is that the, the, the sort of left challenge, the, the, the new left which, which sought to break out of this depoliticization, which challenged um, the, um, the, the sort of old Blairite centrist technocracy and so on, eventually it ended up losing that particular democratic aspect of its challenge. And really that's something I, I'd like to ask you to comment more on, in particular in the sense that uh, it seems to me, you know, from what you just said, and also from our uh, previous discussions on BungaCast, and also when it was called Alfie Bunga Bunga, and it also comes out in the book as well, right? which is that we're not seeing the return of the old mass politics. You know, we're not seeing local branch meetings of millions of members and these kind of things we might think of the mass parties. We're not even seeing uh, in many countries a alternance, uh, uh, you know, the swapping of, of left and right and big political families based on that. Um, but um, but also, uh, I think implicit in your argument is, is that we also can't go back to that. Like we can't just idealize uh, the, the democratic choice or mass participation that existed, say, 40 or 50 years ago, even in the wealthiest Western countries. Even if, also, if we think of the kind of pedagogical model of like, control of information uh, and so on that they, that they Involved, right? So even the best structured, most really participatory parties, you know, I'm always banging on about the example of, like, say, the Italian Communist Party, is that these parties were also very, like, hierarchical and the kind of ways in which, and it's very difficult to, like, recreate the kind of, um, their kind of role as, you know, vehicles for, for, um, for social mobility and training people up and, and making workers into to, to politicians and so on. Um, then the other aspect of the question I particularly want to address, and also, yeah, so the other thing I'll focus on just for the sake of time, is that it seems to me that in this anti-fascism, it's also important to talk about 
what the so-called fascist threat actually is and is, and is doing. Uh, because you know, over the last few years, we've seen these parties like, for example, the Front National in France, uh, Italy, the Lega, or uh, Five Star Movement, even the AfD in Germany, who, of course, are uh, racist parties that attack migrants and which favour some, you know, mobilising sort of hot people against elite rhetoric and all this kind of thing. Uh, but at the same time, you know, when we look at their concrete policy proposals, and in fact, you know, in Italy, there was a government entirely made of these two parties, Labour and Five Star, that they don't even propose to, uh, not only do they not propose to leave the European Union or NATO, but they don't even push against the limits, right? And yet at the same time, we see this, um, uh, we see this um, normalization of these parties precisely on this, on this basis, right? So we get this kind of election time anti-fascism, yet at the same time, all of the themes and discourses of these parties, including actual positive reference to, to the, the fascist past, um, and one of the important vehicles for that as well, I think if we look for a parallel phenomenon on the right, is, that, is this kind of anti-communism without communists, like Richard yeah. Seymour talks about, right? So like if we look at like Brazil, uh, or even more, it's even more true in the case of, of Italy or, or uh, France, it's, it's that you have this, uh, the right, actually, you know, the, the right isn't uh, sort of seeking radical change, isn't mobilizing en masse, but at the same time, you know, these fascists are like reconverting themselves as like anti-communists who obsessively hunt out like Islamo-leftism or this kind of thing. So it seems to me, uh, to, to combine the two points, is that we can see this kind of, uh, there is uh, the end of the end of history, but there's also a kind of return of the reference points of the past because it makes it possible for us to understand our reality in the present. Uh, you know, earlier today, I went to see the, uh, the new Jurassic Park film, right? Which features dinosaurs living among humans in the present. So it's like the end of prehistory. You know, they're, they're but they're not like they were before. They're not dominating, they're just like among us and somehow shaping the discourse. It seems to me that, the, if you will, that the, the history, you know, that these, uh, these um, sort of anthems of the past are back with us, uh, but that they don't actually really shape important, they don't shape policy choices, they don't uh, shape debate about how the future should be, but they are important, uh, still in defined and identitarian political camps. Yeah, no, very good. Um, I, I like that, it's a similar group of dinosaurs that, uh, that kind of uh, populated political debate today. Uh, no, I think that's absolutely right. I think there is, across the board, an unwillingness to deal with the contemporary contradictions that we face today. And so there's this mutual inflation of the other side, which the left and the right carry out in the, the left, such as it is today. Um, being anti-fascist and portraying what are effectively quite weak opponents who don't have a huge amount of political seriousness, as David hinted at, you know, don't want to leave NATO, don't want to leave the EU. Um, I mean, all the main characteristics of what made fascism are completely absent from these movements, I think it's important to say. Um, so while they might be nasty and racist and so on, uh, fascism is the right term for it. And I don't think they should be taken overly seriously because what they give voice to is a void of political opposition. So, you know, we saw in France the fact that 
you know, there's a fairly strong class divide in terms of who voted for Marine Le Pen versus who voted for Macron. Um, and, but that is itself testament to the absence of alternatives. And again, it remains the case that a large sections of the working class prefer not to vote. Um, for all that there's hype about, you know, the workers voting for the right, um, in large part there's still the same sort of apathy or, or you know, lack of belief in any sort of alternative. Um, and I think it, this this political unseriousness, um, yeah, gives voice to weakness on both sides, which should be an opportunity. I mean, it should make us those of us who have some hope still for social transformation rather hopeful. Um, and in seeing the intellectual and ideological weakness of all sides, to actually stake a claim in, in this space, um, the important thing I think is not to get drawn into this hysterical inflation um, of the other side. Um, as to your first point, which I thought was really interesting, and I think you're absolutely right that the left populism, I mean, we wrote the book kind of inspired by these left populist moments. Not that we were the three of us uh, universally in favor of all of them and you know, criticisms, different elements of them and so on. Um, you know, skeptical of uh, you know, the Bernie Sanders campaign so far as it would be channeled through the Democratic Party, which, you know, for all the problems of the Labour Party, the Democratic Party is worse because it's never been a workers' party. Um, but despite all those, those uh, criticisms, there was still the fact that they introduced a democratizing element into debate, and it meant that they didn't fall for the elite anti-fascism line because they themselves were the targets of it, because they were part of the, the populists, the populists of the left who were targeted by the establishment. Um, and one thing that we did say in the book as kind of making predictions of what would happen to politics in the next five to 10 years was that the left side of the spectrum would just become left-wing technocracy, and it would actually be the last political force holding the candle of neoliberalism. Um, and it would do so by effectively being the kind of humanitarian or moral critics of the establishment, saying, well, yes, we agree with your general package, but you know, it would be nice if you did this in a less discriminatory fashion, or if you were a little bit nicer. So no genuine political opposition, but more like the in-house in-house critic chiding whoever the prime minister is, for example, and saying, you know, we maybe, maybe we can technically implement this a little bit better or a little bit more, in a slightly more egalitarian fashion. Um, and I think the other element, which obviously was something that made left populism collapse rather rapidly, I think we charted its cycle as from 2015 to 2019, um, and we can very much say that it's something of the past now, remarkably short-lived. Um, is that um, it tried? It was trying to do politics without the masses. Still, it was still try, it was trying to repeat some older forms of politics without the actual substance there. So you didn't have mass organizations. You don't have mass trade unions, bar you know maybe Belgium and the Nordic countries. But you know those are effectively exceptions, and they're not particularly militant either. So um, trying to do politics without the masses is effectively our fate. We're all having to try to do that, but it needs to be kind of reconstructed from the ground up. And I think our task has to be at least, if everything is social determinist and, every, and everything keeps getting drawn in to these four or five year electoral cycles, wherever you are, when politics and when left-wing politics gets drawn into those cycles, it always will fall into this uh, trap 
of elite anti-fascism, of supporting the lesser evil. And, you know, everyone's seen, I think, that chart about the lesser evil, and you end up, you know, you, the lesser evil starts here, and then it ends up all the way over at the right, and it's still the lesser evil, you know. Uh, you know, Trump will be the lesser evil one day against an even worse opponent or whatever. Um, so I think that what, if no one else is going to be kind of looking at the long term, uh, I think the task of the left, at least, is to be thinking periods of 10, 20 years and not, you know, every electoral cycle. Uh, one final point, which uh, sparked my interest, which David made, so I'd like to take the opportunity to respond to it, is that it's true that the old hierarchically integrated party doesn't exist anymore and, and might not have capacity to come back to life in today's context because there's been a degree of, I guess, cultural democratization and a lack of respect for hierarchy and authority, which in one way is good, I think. Uh, in one way, it speaks to uh, a desire for autonomy, but at the same time, it uh, speaks to a desire to escape from any ties that might bind us whatsoever. So everybody wants low exit costs, right? So you might sign up, you might sign a petition, or you might join some new movement, which doesn't demand you to pay dues. You're just a member of one day and then you leave the next day because you don't want to be tied down. And I think this is um, something that's very evident kind of across the board we see. I mean, in terms of work as well, like we don't get fixed formal jobs. We want to be able to leave uh, all the time. Um, and so that, that's a kind of double-edged sword. But I think what we can also see in society is a genuine desire for social purpose, right? We feel that this kind of free-floating, individualized atomization is pretty meaningless, and we want something to hold on to, right? We want something that would um, demand some sense of commitment from us. And I think even the pandemic, you saw this, people wanting to go out and help, help out, and instead they were told to stay at home, but there was a desire for some grand project in which we can all buy into. So despite all the cynicism that we have today, there's also this element of looking for something. Uh, and so, in terms of a, it, or an organizational model, I think it'd be probably better to start small and make demands of one's members rather than try to do this, um, you know, very spontaneous form of politics that has dominated uh, the left for the past 20 years, where you can just turn up at a protest and leave, and nothing is asked of you. You don't ask anything of the party, and that's the end of it. Um, so more commitment, maybe, is a good thing. I'm saying something very traditional here, but I'm okay with that. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I, okay, so if we look at the, um, you know, these aren't particularly inspiring examples because the country's concerns are small, but if we look at the two currently most successful and rising left-wing parties in Europe, then the ones that I think of at least are the Belgian Workers' Party, which is the third biggest party in Belgium, and then the other one is uh, Sinn Féin in Ireland. And right, so in both cases, they are effectively old, uh, you know, you want to call it Sinn Féin, but basically they're old Marxist Leninist parties, which in the Sinn Féin case obviously having a you know, somewhat secret element of its structure, but like a very internal hierarchical structure. The Belgian Workers' Party was a, you know, was a, a Stalinist, you know, pro-Stalin, not just pro-Regiment party, it was the 80s or 90s which have recently opened up their membership and become a bit more pluralistic, watered down to say a bit, and so on. So they're currently the most successful. And if you think on the, on the uh, far right, we can also find lots of examples, including in Italy, both the Lega and Fratelli d'Italia, which is effectively the old neo-fascist party, MSI. 
So they were very well-structured parties, and they have cadres, they have local organizations, they have local branches, and amidst the general volatility of politics, they managed to suddenly capture a big swathe of the electorate uh, and somewhat increase their like, territorial presence, but not that much. Um, but then I think the, the you know, the, 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 what that makes me ask, I, I suppose, is, you know, like, okay, so it's, it's true that it would be great if in any given country we could have such a party to take over and build on or change, but then, you know, what if we, what if we don't? Uh, because, of course, in the case of the, the Labour Party in Britain, it seemed like we suddenly had this great opportunity to take over, for the left to take over this party. But if you look at the whole Corbyn era, I think nothing was done to change. I think, I think there was no concerted effort to rebuild the party's like, territorial roots, to change even such a measure, for instance, as trying to reverse the historic trend for there to be less uh, blue-collar or even pink-collar um, councillors and candidates and so on, right? There's been a long-term professionalization of its political personality. It's become more middle-class, and you know, that's not the only key to changing political representation, but you know, nothing's done. We, we were in charge, and then the immediate electoral concerns dominated everything, basically. The whole project was very shaped by like, media scandals and so on. And it seems to me that the, the fundamental problem is, is not just that, well, it would be good to you know, have a longer-term strategy, but actually the, the, the difference between these experiences and like historic mass parties is that they lack the kind of, um, they, they lack the separate worldview that would make sense, which would make sense for them to accept a role as like long-term opposition parties. The, the, the problem with them is that they're not the harbingers of a different kind of society. They're effectively left liberal parties with, with more social elements. And I think uh, you know, part of the problem there too, also in terms of who these parties mobilise as, the, as their own members, is that if you look at like, and sorry, I'll focus on the Corbyn thing because I'm English, but like, it's like the, the, it, it's, it's almost like the problem politically with them. I think the limit of the uh, you know, when you talk about the the end of the end of history, the end of the neoliberal triumphalism of the 1990s, is that it seems to me that a lot of the mobilising themes of these experiments are actually an attempt to like um, do like do it again, but better to realise what they promised. Right? I think a good example would be that um, the notion of like the Blairism promoted in Britain, which is like um, education as a path to social mobility, right? So it's like the, the critique is kind of, well, we spent all this money on a degree, but then we can't get a good job and can't get a, uh, you know, can't get a house and so on. And of course that is very fundamental as a, as a, as a mobilizing tool. It's a very important way in which political life in Britain is currently structured. But it seems to me to also not sort of carry forth a, a, like a different view of how society should uh, should be organised, right? So, so I, I, I guess my question is kind of like we seem to face this like endless uh, series of crises and, and crisis management in, in Western democracies. But it seems to be hard hard to me to point to the tendencies which would actually revive the idea of of, of like socialism as a as an alternative in, in the, the full sense of that word, in the sense of an actual 
economic transformation, uh, and in particular one which doesn't take the form of, of like a kind of eco-socialist technocracy, yeah. because that would seem to be the easiest way to, I mean, that, you know, and so, you know, I work for Jacobin, and I feel like uh, sometimes what we promote actually is a bit more important. It is kind of like, yeah, we take over these liberal left parties, and it will happen, and it will happen anyway. It won't be left parties that will do it, and it will be quite punitive to the, the majority of, of society. So I don't think it's anything necessary to hope for. You know, I think ideas of Green New Deal and so on will get adopted by uh, the leaders of the EU and so on. So I think, um, you know, I, I don't think, uh, be careful what you wish for, I think, because those ideas will be adopted. Um, and I think what we've seen over the past couple of years is uh, precisely kind of ruling class adoption of many ideas which were originally on the left and were seen as alternative and are now used in many ways as, as forms of domination. So uh, I think that's something to, to definitely be aware of. Um, we want to go to questions? We go down to the audience? Hello. Well, uh, first question is, um, what do you think about the relationship between ruling class hysteria and uh, drug consumption, like in the lead circles? I mean, some time ago, I, I read this, uh, I mean, uh, it was an interview with Mark Jacobson, who wrote this book about the, the pale horse rider, who was this one of the most uh, read books in prisons in the United States, and it's like a classic of conspiracy theory. And he said that, you know, in the 60s, when you were, you know, left-wing and politically concerned, you always had a theory about who killed John Kennedy. You know, it was part of your political education, and of course it had somehow, it has something to do with uh, marijuana consumption. <laughs> Then this consumption moved to other circles, and then conspiracy theories became a more right-wing thing. So I was thinking maybe there is something going on there, <laughs> but like a kind of neoliberal uh, conspiracy theory. Yeah, and my second question was about the, uh, the subject of nationalism. I don't know the case of Belgium that you were mentioning, but I mean, in the case of Sinn Féin, it's like a, you know, it's a left-wing party, but it's also like, I mean, it's the history of Irish nationalism. Um, I mean, it's an important topic, maybe a bit delicate in the context of left-wing politics, but how you can like harness nationalism, maybe in a more emancipatory direction and not in the other directions that we know. Yeah. So, these are questions. I'd rather talk about Belgian nationalism than Prussian. Doesn't exist. I'm going I'm to uh, provide an amazing and astounding synthesis of the two. I know. Why don't you go ahead about Belgium? No, I mean, I, but, okay, but I, I think also in the Irish case, I mean, it's, it, the, the, the nationalism is, of course, the core thing of the identity of the party, and it's an urgent vein that allows it to overcome many other contradictions. For example, in Northern Ireland, uh, Sinn Féin has been a junior partner in government for years, so it always has a kind of opposition uh, thing, and like, you know, even campaigning on things like the Irish language, and of course, in the you know, post-1998 period, 
there'd be more Catholics in the civil service and this kind of stuff. But like, in effect, Sinn Féin follows like a neoliberal um, economic policy in the North of distributing funds given to the North by the British state. Whereas in the South, it's electoral, it, you know, public fund, it's uh, electoral appeal, and it's quite in recent years, which is very new. I mean, Sinn Féin before uh, 10, 15 years ago, I think, was on you know, barely you know, high single figures or low 10% of support. Uh, and like the Brexit stuff, in which it's also changed its position of being critical of the EU, uh, has shaken that up. But I think the fundamental thing driving Sinn Féin's support is housing, and to some extent the job market, the fair of the kind of uh, classic tiger economy and so on. Uh, Sinn Féin, unlike most left-wing parties in Europe, its electorate is not only very young, but also heavily biased towards uh, the population categories with the, with the lowest educational qualifications. Uh, partly because it is very like demonised still in the yeah. mainstream Irish press. Uh, the Belgian case, uh, the Belgian Workers Party is actually the only like, if you will, non-sectarian cross linguistic party. It's actually a Belgian Unionist party, but again, in that case, you know, I think that's uh, not essential to its appeal, apart from a sort of broad rejection of the, the petty nationalism that might exist there. Uh, and of course, the other great example of the European left currently is France and Sumise, because Jean-Claude got 22%, the left-wing coalition is going to get a quarter of the vote or so in uh, this weekend. And in, the, in that case as well, they, they've constantly shifted between two very different ideas, one of which is uh, promoted by people like François Ruffin, the film director, who's a France and Sumise MP, which is to appeal to the fasci, have fasci, like, the angry but not fascist. So it's like the kind of archetypal, you know, gilet jaune or like small town motorist who's like struggling with the cost of fuel and so on. You might vote for the Rassemblement Front National, which isn't like ideologically fascist. And then there's an alternative or at least a distinct project, which is to impose the party's hegemony over the residual left. And like, I think broadly it's shifted towards the, the second of those strategies. With some success, I mean, it's the only of the new left parties in Europe that's actually, like, oh, well, off of Syriza, but, uh, which has actually, you know, like, succeeded in sort of hegemonizing the other parties, but at the same time, it's kind of like critique of the European Union and so on has certainly diminished a lot. Yeah, and I think that last point is the fundamental one, and I think this goes to the question about uh, harnessing nationalism. I think what has been clear over the neoliberal period is elites retreat from the nation, escape into uh, globalized spaces of finance, retreating into closed off spaces within cities. Um, and effectively, what the nation has come to represent is the masses. And the elites don't want to have anything to do with that. They don't want to seek to represent masses of people, whether even kind of sections of the middle class, there's a kind of ickiness about it. Um, there is this gaping void between the political class and the people. And so I'm not sure about harnessing nationalism in terms of you know, national symbols and cultural uh, ties necessarily, but at, at a basic sense to reconstitute the nation and the goal of the working class constituting itself as a nation is incredibly important. And within the context of Europe and within the EU, withdrawal from the European Union has to be the primary objective, I think, politically. 
Um, and anybody who um, tries to kind of step away from that because of the potential negative consequences or so on, I think is deluding themselves. Um, there is no transformation of the EU possible. But it is unreformable and it is set up to be unreformable. And so in that context, you can only seek to withdraw. And I think one withdrawal after another would then provoke a very serious crisis. Will it all be pretty and will it all be you know, utopia the next day? No. But I think that will at least provide some possibility for an actual future rather than a kind of interminable present of steadily declining incomes and all the rest of the uh, pathologies we see today. So, you know, I'm an internationalist and I would defend that, but it's important to remember that it is internationalism. It is not something that takes place in some global space um, completely disconnected from locales. It is internationalism and the first stage of that has to be to conquer the nation, conquer the nation state. Um, and then all, absolutely all for cooperation across borders. I think it's incredibly important. But what you have within the EU is not cooperation between peoples. It is cooperation between elites against their own peoples. Especially on the left, to like rally behind like Ukrainian flags and be like, this is our like anti-fascist fight against Russia in like a very like as you would perhaps call it hysterical way to like, yeah, everything would be paradise if paradise if it wasn't for like the villain Putin and like sort of it aligns very neatly with what you were saying. Just sorry, that's just my observation. You take a Yeah, firstly, I'm coming here from Scotland. Uh, we're the cause of a lot of Ireland's historic pain, but I am fully in favour of the reunification of Ireland, and I want to emphasise the point I think that's important. The internationalism uh, is always going to imply the national dimension, and you've got to start the fight from the national dimension in the first instance. I loved your book. Um, I thought it was brilliant. I also love David's book, by the way. Um, please buy that as well. Um, but one... <laughs> Um, one wee sceptical question I suppose I have, I don't know if it's already been taken care of by what David said, about the difference between the end of the end of history and the restarting of history. And it's an important distinction to make. But is there a case to say that perhaps the forces of turbulence that took us from the early period after 2008, with the rise of Syriza, the demos and others that you mentioned, uh, I'll include our own movement in Scotland in 2014, which is sometimes forgotten. Then the sort of what you might call the right populist moment, uh, 2016, uh, Trump, um, Brexit, etc. Um, up to about 2019. Haven't we seen since then the return to a sort of post-political biopolitics, the return to many of the themes that seemed to predominate in the 1990s? Even some of the rhetoric of humanitarian intervention and of the right of the Western powers to impose a sort of international settlement on things and so on, 
And how does that fit in, I suppose, that, uh, that 90s revivalism to your thesis? Okay, I'll, I'll respond to that. Um, no, I think you're making the point, uh, the first point made, that Germany has thrown itself behind, largely speaking, uh, Ukraine and you know, sort of anti-fascist struggle. So, I mean, I, I buy that, I think, as well. I guess it's just that it's um, maybe direct military involvement is, is you know, less, uh, less pronounced for obvious reasons. Um, as to the kind of the point about whether there's been a return to a sort of post-political biopolitics. I mean, it did seem that way, certainly with the pandemic, and as I said in the, like my introductory comments, that that represented certainly an attempt to return to technocracy, um, to put experts not back in charge, but for politicians to hide behind the word of experts. Um, I don't know, actually, and I think it depends where, where you're sitting. Whenever I observe British politics, it certainly does seem that way. Um, that Kind of they have succeeded temporarily to put things back in the bottle. But I think, um, you know, Britain's going to have the lowest growth rate in the G20, um, I think, or I think Brazil, which, you know, no, that comes as no surprise to me. Um, we have our own more British problems. Um, but I think that, faced with various other factors of turbulence, uh, mean that things won't go back in the bottle. And I think we're facing for the first time in more than a generation, inflation in a way that we're not used to dealing with. And it, it, that can have such dislocating effects on politics that I don't think it's so easy to predict um, that, well, one, it's not so easy to predict what will happen. And secondly, I don't think that will be able to be managed by mere kind of post-political maneuvers. So, for example, that the, the classic case of kind of post-politics and post-democracy is independent central banks, right? So setting monetary rates becomes something that central banks do separate from politicians. Politicians can't interfere, therefore they can't seek to manipulate interest rates for, the, for, the, for an electoral benefit or whatever, right? Raising interest rates today is not going to solve the problem. It's only going to compound it um, because it's mainly driven by supply-side shocks, not, not increasing demand no wage price spiral. In fact, maybe it will provoke a wage price spiral, and that would be quite interesting for workers then started demanding higher wages to keep up with inflation. Then, you know, inevitably there'll be some terrible uh, retro symbolic mentions of the 1970s then, um, which will also be important to kind of say, no, look, we have to deal with the specific contradictions of the 2020s, not of the 1970s, but nevertheless, I think that will be at least more promising ground for politics. Than, uh, than what we have. So yeah, I mean, it, my my positive take on this is, you know, don't worry, things will get worse. <laughs> I'm going to ask a question. Okay, so um, we've been talking about ruling class hysteria, um, and I think there's a, a difference, of course, between ruling class hysteria, this sort of um, uh, obsessive idea about the barbarians at the gates. Right, but, but we're also saying, well, of course, like the, the fascist, you know, it's not fascism, whatever the, the challenge to it is. Um, but one thing you talk about in the book is that, you know, one of the things that underpins the strength of the, the left and the anti-capitalist challenge and even the bases of sort of European social democracy, even under Christian Democrat governments in the interwar period, is the fear of the Soviet Union. 
which isn't just hysteria, but rather like ruling classes being afraid and some sort of uh, very limited and failing, but nonetheless the vision of an alternative society, which somehow you know is intrinsically involved in European affairs and even in the in domestic politics of, of Western countries. Uh, and of course, you would say like the sort of like if that's fear, then the hysteria of the equivalent is like Russia because it's just like massively inflated or whatever. Uh, but, but I mean, I think, of course, you know, the, the book mainly talks about Western European countries in the United States. Um, and, you know, we talk a lot about the European Union and, and this kind of supranational governance zone. But I wonder if you could comment a little on, like, how you think uh, the end of the end of history will be, will be affected uh, in, European, in European countries and their public debate. By the by, the further decline of Europe, by the rise of China, which you don't really talk about in the book, because it seems like okay, okay, obviously China doesn't really represent the alternative in the way the Soviet Union does, but nonetheless, its rise like significantly um, reorganizes European its place in kind of global vision of labor and the way we think about ourselves and so on. Yeah, I mean, I guess one possible effect of that might be to re-provincialize Europe so that we don't think of ourselves as somehow universal or the centre of world politics, but see our problems as quite particular. And I think that might be a, a good way also of bringing politics home. Um, so I think that re-provincialization of Europe uh, should be something that would be encouraged. Um, as to China, I think, you know, China has probably learned some lessons from the West, and certainly the West is learning lessons from China. We see the lockdowns being the world the most classic case. Uh, the WHO said in no, in no circumstances should you do lockdowns in response to the pandemic. China went and did it, and all the Western states uh, ad adapted it. Um, I don't know how much of a lesson that will be now if you follow what's been happening in Shanghai with these uh, crazy lockdowns that they've been having, um, whether that will in any way present a, <laughs> a positive vision for, uh, for European leads to resolve. But I think you're right that our book focuses mainly on the West. There's a little bit about Brazil and other places in Latin America. But um, I think one important thing, especially as it relates to the question of hysteria, is that in most Western, you know, across Western Europe and, and North America, the establishment is largely speaking liberal. Um, maybe left liberal even, if, if you wish. Um, which is different uh, on the periphery of global capitalism, where it's far more nakedly authoritarian and right-wing. Um, and so the particular forms of hysteria that, that have taken root uh, in the West are, in some ways, facets of uh, that sort of liberal cultural hegemony that you have. You have it in Germany, you have it in the UK, and so on. Um, which is rather different to, you know, for example, my experience in Brazil, what you have there where it's still a far more traditionalist and more, um, I don't know how to put this exactly, but effectively not liberal in the same way that we would understand it in, in Europe. It's, it's certainly neoliberal, um, but with far more kind of overtly reactionary themes. And so the hysteria that you get there is precisely the, the, the kind of anti-communist form that you, that you mentioned earlier, that, that you, the sort of anti-fascism. But anyway, again, these are all, you know, simulacra of dinosaurs <laughs> to, to, to the dominant phrase. I was wondering for a second whether you, or whether, whether you, within the discussion, look in the wrong and the wrong direction. And there's, 
Because of course we can read that end of end of history as a return to nationalism. And we have to, that we would work with the nations. But in the German history, of course, if you're a socialist and they're turning national, that's not a good experience. No? <laughs> so that's something we see very critical. But the other direction to look at uh, is like not to see the Ukraine war now as something a war of Russia against Ukraine or a proxy war of America against Russia, but rather to look at the elite positions. And you talk of very often from the point, you make the point as if the elite speaks with one tongue, but maybe it doesn't. And maybe we could rather interpret the situation, in, interpret the situation that we have now as a victory of one part of the elite against another part of the elite, broadly speaking of the, how to say, war oil fraction of the elite against the climate finance fraction. And then you have completely different dynamics, and the end of, end of, end of the end of history looks very different from whether you project it on the nationalist front. I think that's a very good point. I mean, what is striking in the kind of uh, continuation of neoliberalism, kind of the zombie neoliberalism that we're living through, is not just the absence of any mass politics to overthrow neoliberalism, whether it's to reinstall some form, of, some form of reheated social democracy, which seems to be the extent of our imaginations, or something else entirely. It's not just that, it's the fact that there hasn't been really any elite fraction which has been willing to push us beyond that. So even the oil and war fraction versus the, 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 green, the green finance faction, neither, neither of those represents a move beyond neoliberal forms of management and the neoliberal accumulation regime. So yes, it gives different um, aspects, I guess, and different kind of responses to foreign policy, different responses to energy, but in terms of the fundamentals of the economy and of how politics is arranged, neither represents further democratization or really any significant shift beyond neoliberalism. So it's true, the, the, the elite isn't completely unitary, um, but what strike is precisely, I think, even even within the elite, the differences still remain rather slim. They're still signed up to the same sort of package. I think um, maybe somewhat relatedly, um, it's a question about the uniqueness of Germany. Maybe I'm completely wrong about this, but I think that one of your kind of strong strongest observation in the book and more generally is that uh, the end of history was, uh, was always a gloomy um, concept. It was not uh, really uh, triumphalist in any meaningful sense. Um, only that maybe in Germany it was triumphalist, triumphalistic, um, insofar as here uh, it amounted to a collapse of, a, of an actual war, and not war, sorry, and not just uh, trade barriers. Um, and so maybe that maybe this kind of I mean looking at the situation from a German perspective, uh, the thesis need to be kind of um, kind of qualified, and to think of the end of history moment as something that consisted of both uh, luminous and triumphalism. I know, absolutely. I, I I mean I think that's a very good point, and I think. It might also be a reason behind which you know the German end of history has been um, perpetuated longer than elsewhere, precisely because of that. And as I mentioned, uh, you know, in, in the introduction as well, that Germany was sort of post-historical before post-history. Um, and it's worth remembering, of course, that there isn't just one end of history. That 
that we've passed through a whole series of end of histories. In the 1950s, there were books written about the end of ideology and so on. Um, so there's, there's always been these periods in which it feels like things have come to a standstill. But the important thing, at least within modernity, and here's a question, maybe we're not in modernity anymore, but you know, within modernity, that the, 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 the kind of vociferous forces of modernity and the drive for freedom will end up breaking apart any solid order at some point or another. Um, the only problem is that we're in this interregnum and it seems to be carrying on and on and on. Um, so, you know, the chance is still there and open to, to, to break through. kind of materialist politics in societies like Germany where most of people work in bureaucracies. <laughs> <laughs> like, like what would general strike represent if most of workers come from Eastern Europe or Southern Europe? So like I mean can you maybe comment on this multiplication of PMC class in Germany and Western countries? Okay. Is, is there a chance in society where most of the society is PNC class, we don't have the materialist But maybe Germany is actually a really bad example for that because Germany is a Western country with one of the percentage of people working in manufacturing. exception of Belgium, which is <laughs> that the Hobbesman talks about this in, um, in the forward march of David Hobbesman, but it's never been the case that most people in the society have manufacturing jobs. Of course not, but in many societies in the 20th century, like big concentrations of workers obviously did serve as uh, centers of mobilization, of class strength, who could show the power of solidarity and mobilization. But that also allowed like far more fragmentary and broad coalitions to be built around parties which identified as parties of workers. So you know, if you look at like the biggest mass party in any West European country in the 20th century, the uh, in uh, parliamentary democracy, 
uh, the Italian Communist Party had two million members. You know, those weren't all working in a field, right? There were loads of like artisans and shopkeepers and farm laborers and some white collar workers and teachers and so on. But the thing is, is that the, the class element isn't just a sociological fact. And that's actually also why I cite this group the way you ended your introduction when you said, like, we need a politics which isn't just of like um, morality, but also but of, but of interest and setting up for working class interest. But I think the problem is, is that the working class interest also has to be defined in, in, a, in a sort of, in a sense of values, not just like economic ones, not just like you know, higher wages or better services, although that's part of it, but like the workers' movement and mass parties that have existed have always had a, a, almost like a kind of spiritual element even, like a, a, a conception of fairness and so on. And I think that that's very important, and that's also why what I say is the limit of these left populist Things, that they don't actually have that. They don't have a fundamentally different worldview. Yeah, no, I mean, I don't, I'm not arguing for an economistic sort of approach based on just basic trade union activity. There has to be some vision of freedom, effectively, uh, underpinning it. And I think that's one of the more promising things today, that everybody today is a Democrat. Um, everybody is a very isolated, atomized Democrat. Um, and maybe we're scared of one another. And that's something that needs to be overcome. But um, all the ideas of hierarchy and deference are no longer there. So there is a possibility, really, of selling an idea of uh, effectively freedom through democracy. Um, the problem is, is that, as you, as you rightly allude, is that the, the kind of class character is not just a kind of sociological, economic one, but a political one about what kind of um, vision that is that is proposed and where you stand with regard to capitalism. The public political parties today is that they are indeed dominated by those bureaucrats you mentioned. Not because society is composed of bureaucrats, um, but rather that society is dominated by bureaucrats, and that's certainly the case for all the sort of hollowed out political parties that dominate the scene today. Right. But there's no um, single vision for the working class, at least we say in the US, right? The working class has contrast to ideas of what you know, the ideologies are, you know, the left working class have a completely different vision for open borders and all that. You have a working class in the Midwest or the Wall Belt in, in, in the U.S. that was, you know, the cognitive, completely defensive ideologies as to what their interests are. So there's no, there's no sort of flat name of kind of coherence or a unified, a unified vision. You know. The working classes in the U.S., I don't know what the situation is in Europe, perhaps, so what say in the case of the US, how I mean how some idea to what the current elite class has been able to sort of affect affect or move away from this kind of neoliberal paradigm if there is no consistency in the kind of vision of what the working class wants. But you see, I, I agree with what you just said, and that's why I, why I um, that I mean that's the the, the base of my, my the point I'm trying to make, which is that the the working class doesn't just like spontaneously emerge as a political subject, like just because of its economic position or because of it being grouped together or something. Like it's it is in like inherently atomized, and you know there are all sorts of um, barriers to working class people having any kind of political participation, never mind one based on solidarity. My point is that the class as a political subject, as one which like crosses divides, as one which is like a multiracial working class, 
which represents skilled workers, uh, precarious workers, people who are retired, you know, all the different groups you can imagine. What my point is that we need a political project that unites those people on the basis of the things that do unite them. And that's something that has to be made to exist. And in the United States, it historically hasn't, because you know, the United States historically hasn't had any kind of labor or social democratic And it's been divided by race, which is the main means by which uh, the class is divided. And you find this around the world, that there are ethnic ties or whatever, which also impede the kind of class formation and then class, uh, class politics based on solidarity. So I totally agree with what David just said. It's not an automatic process. And you can't wait for some spontaneous uh, moment where the class comes into formation. That's why politics is important. Um, otherwise, you wouldn't need politics. Otherwise, you'd just say, hey, just go do revolution. And then everything's sorted. Um, so, you know, it's a process also of political leadership and of giving voice and explanations for the frustrations that people feel with their lives. Um, and so that's still the, a, a, an important intellectual task for everyone, I think, you know, to actually provide the language through which to understand the situation in which you find yourself, the contradictions that you face, the unfreedom that you feel at work, the frustrations that you feel in civic life, uh, the forms of domination that you encounter day to day, and to make sense of those in a coherent narrative rather than necessarily playing to people's prejudices and saying, oh, well, yes, I totally understand where you're coming from and, and, and leave it at that. There still needs to be a sense of dialogue, of argumentation between people, and that's still the essence of politics. There's no way to get around that. Thank you. We can thank David and Alex for being here. Thank you for